Well, it is possible as we continue this Ephesians series, it is possible that the United States of America and potentially the church in America is experiencing a watershed moment when it comes to race relations. And, and Ephesians chapter 2 is a book that's all about repairing broken race relations. So this is just a wonderfully providential experience together. That This watershed moment that the church in Ephesus experienced as they had these racial tensions that actually began to heal. Here we are in America with racial tensions that, that don't seem to be healing. But maybe now is a watershed moment for the United States of America. And maybe a watershed moment for the church in America. Now, I want to kind of contrast sort of a normal cycle of race, racial tensions and then what I'm seeing, sensing, experiencing, and hoping is happening right now. So here's sort of the normal pattern that I have seen over the years. The normal pattern is there is unjust violence, and unfortunately, this happens all too often, and it's almost like this very sad rhythm where there's unjust violence against a minority, followed by, understandable, public outcry, and typically that public outcry uh, happens from the minority communities with white sympathy, which is good. Many peaceful demonstrations, some unfortunate rioting takes place. Some white folks point to the riots and point to African-American conservatives, typically, and, and use the riots and use African-American conservatives sometimes, this is not everybody, but sometimes to say, you know what, maybe there isn't as big of a problem as it's being portrayed. And maybe I'm not the problem, maybe they are the problem. This happens. It's almost like a formula that keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. And I will tell you, I've been sent the same four videos a hundred times in the past three weeks. This is a formula. It's a pattern that happens. Politicians and institutional leaders begin to talk about change. They begin to talk about change. And then over time, maybe days, a couple weeks, the news cycle settles down and little actually changes. That's the normal formula. That's the normal pattern. Now, all the while, during this normal formula and this normal pattern, much of the church sits on the sidelines. And maybe there is a 90-second video, maybe a sermon or two, and then we get back to our normal music and Bible study and our Sunday morning rhythms, and very little changes. And that music and that Bible study, not bad things, but largely disconnected from the real issues of the day. Something is taking place now that seems and feels a little bit different, and I'm hoping so. Here's, here's the difference I'm seeing. Um, first, it begins with the same old thing that happens way too much, where there's unjust violence against ethnic minorities. Now, in our situation, about a month ago, three videos surfaced, each from different kinds of oppression against minorities, against people of color, particularly uh, the black community. And there's this outrage, again, a public outcry by minorities. But this time, that public outcry is not just with white sympathy, but with white allies, and some might even say white warriors. And so there's a real unity taking place, particularly among the youth. So if you're millennial or younger, um, there's a real outpouring, not just of temporary sympathies, but a partnership and allies and warriors are forming. It's an incredible thing to see in these protests, these peaceful protests, this wonderful um, mix of generations, but particularly young people of all ethnicities. That is different. That's been building over many years. There are many peaceful demonstrations and, again, some unfortunate rioting. Now, what happens again is, is some, not all, some white people look to the riots and look to black conservatives in particular 
to try to say once again, maybe it's not as bad as it seems and maybe I don't have anything to do with it. Maybe it's not my fault, it's their problem. It's the same things being tried, but this time it is falling short. This time it is falling short, it's falling flat. And, and what I'm feeling and what I'm seeing pervasively is that the world, not just America even, these injustices in America are now being felt and sensed all across the world and in countries all over the world. They're now looking at the racial injustices against people of color, against minorities, and even against women. So it could be that globally there's this sense of justice arising that says, you know what, we're not just going to keep accepting the same normal and say, well, that's just the way it's always been. And yes, it's unfortunate, but no, this can be changed. And so every form or justification that might say, you know, it's not that bad, or, or maybe I don't have any responsibility in this, or maybe it's their problem, all of those things are now starting to fall very, very flat. Politicians and institutional leaders, uh, they're not just talking about change, but they're beginning to implement change at a pace I've never seen before. So if you just kind of look over the history of these injustices that make the news and create a stir, it's usually a lot of dialogue, 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 and then, and then when it all settles down, there really isn't any change. We're seeing substantial change right now happening every single day, right? And you're talking about legislation changes, statues coming down, Confederate flags gone, bad cops being fired, and I'm telling you, the people who want the bad cops out more than anything are the good cops who are here for the right reasons and, and doing their job and protecting it. Great personal sacrifice. Change is actually happening. Professional sports is getting on board. There's real consequences for racism. If you have a, a racist you know, a comment, if you have a racist action, there is now consequence to that. That's a change that I'm sensing, feeling, seeing. News cycles are not settling down as quickly, and real sustained change appears to be happening, and I put a little question mark there because we'll, we still have to see how sustainable this is. We still, still have to see what that rate of change in, is and how far that change goes. And if there's truly a long-term passion uh, of the diversity of the United States of America and even globally to say enough is enough, we're not gonna tolerate injustice anymore. We're not gonna tolerate racism anymore. We're gonna, we're gonna try to see where our own bias is, where the bias of our institutions are. We're gonna find them and we're gonna, gonna change them. And that's an exciting journey. And when it comes to church, I've been wrestling with whether church institutionally is part of the racial problem, and I can't get any other answer out of my head, but yes, it is part of the problem. So churches have a decision to make as well. Do churches sympathize for a moment with the black community or with people of color who are experiencing bias and oppression and racism? Do we sympathize for a moment as usual and get back to our normal, our music and our Bible studies, or do churches reform? Do churches reform and get back to the cause of Christ, which is the cause of justice and mercy? Is that, once again, going to be the driving force of the church? Are we just gonna get back to our self-feeding, I call it kind of spiritual gluttony, feed me music, feed me Bible study, and let me listen and participate? That's the culture of church, when the culture of church, I think, needs a reform, and it needs to say we're gonna get back to the cause of Christ, which is justice and mercy. Here is how Jesus introduced himself reading from the prophet Isaiah and says, this is my ministry. Now listen to the cause of Christ. The spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
That's a prophecy from the book of, of Isaiah. And Jesus says, it is here, it is now, and it is me. And me and my disciples, we're going to bring the promised justice. We're going to bring the promised mercy. We're going to bring the promised favor of the Lord to everyone everywhere, especially the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the oppressed. That time is now. I'm going to put a fine point on this. Jesus did not come to organize Sunday morning gatherings of music and Bible study. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, Matthew, Mark Luke, and John a hundred times. You will never once come across any implication that Jesus came to create Sunday morning music and Bible study. He didn't do that. Now, I don't mind Sunday morning music and Bible study. We're experiencing Sunday morning music and Bible study right now. That's all fine. If it's pointed toward equipping people to advance the cause of Christ, which is justice and mercy. Jesus did not come to organize Sunday morning gatherings of music and Bible study. He came to equip and mobilize a movement of diverse people making the world more like heaven, fighting poverty, fighting injustice, and fighting religious and political oppression. That's what Jesus did with his life. And it seems his followers should do the same thing. And he was so committed to that fight so committed to justice and mercy and freedom from oppression that it cost him his life. This fight cost him his life. He was crucified for this cause. Now the church has a decision to make. The institutional church has a decision to make. It's a watershed moment. Now you may know what a watershed is, right? A watershed is, is a ridge that drains to two different systems. And so you might have heard of the continental divide here in North America. So there it is. There's the line. If, if two raindrops fall side by side, let's say a centimeter apart, one falls on one side of the divide, one falls on the other, one drop of rain, one centimeter apart, will end up in the Pacific Ocean. The other drop of rain will end up in the Mississippi River, thousands of miles apart. That's the continental divide. That's what the church is going through right now. We have a decision to make as a church. And these are church leaders. These are church um, uh, boards, uh, boards of elders, pastors, communities of pastors, denominations. The church, the capital C, global church, has to make a watershed decision. Are we going to keep loading our man-made religious traditions that we call the Christian religion, or are we going to follow Jesus in mission? That's the, the watershed moment. That's the decision. And that decision is more clear now than it's been in decades. And that choice has got to be intentional. We've got to decide. We're going with normal man-made traditions that we call the Christian religion, or we're going to go with something that is passionately centered on Jesus and the cause of Christ. And, and the cause of Christ, you could trace back to the, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, right? Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8. It's so simple. We memorized it when we were kids. We, it, it's sung in songs. Micah 6, 8, it's so simple. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. We know that passage. If you've been raised in church, you know that passage. Now, if you were to look at the church today, would this roll off your tongue? I'm going to look at the church, and I've been kind of picking on particularly the evangelical church because, again, that's the stream that, that we kind of swim in. And, and so if you were to analyze the evangelical church, would, would, would you just say, oh, gosh, 
the evangelical church today, they do justice. I mean, let me tell you what they're doing to, to bring equality, to, to, to free people from oppression, to, to fight injustices all over. That's what they do. They love mercy. They love taking the resources that God's so richly given to, the, to them, and they love pouring that out to those who are poor and who are sick and those who are marginalized. They just love mercy, and they are the most humble people you've ever met. Is that the reputation of the evangelical church? I think you know the answer. When Jesus was confronting sort of the religious norms of the time, listen to what he says, Matthew 23, 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. They were so intent on their fine points of their religious practices, they even tithe 10% to the temple of their spices, and Jesus says, hey, fine. You want to tithe 10% of your spices to the temple, knock yourself out. But don't forget the more important way to your things. And what are they? Well, there it is. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. We've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to that. So our goal during this Ephesians series is to look at the context of Ephesians, which was just rife with with racial tensions and injustices against each other based on race to take the truths of Ephesians and to apply them right here and right now. And so the goal is that over time, the reputation of the church will heal. So people will think of the church and immediately think justice. They'll think of the church and immediately think mercy. They'll think of the church and immediately think humility. We can get back to that because we've got the Word of God, we've got the Spirit of God, we've got the model of Jesus Christ himself, and we can get back to that. And not just as as a church, but individually, we can have this journey that says, you know what, I want to be a person of justice. I want to be a person of mercy. I want to be a person who's humble. Let let those three words just go deep in our minds and deep in our hearts and, and to pray to God, Lord, That's what I want of my life. I want my life to reflect the life of Jesus. I have the spirit of Christ, the nature of Christ, the word of God, the example of Christ. God, help me walk a journey of justice, mercy, and humility. And where we are living a life that's not aligned with justice, mercy, and humility, let's confess that, let's repent of that, let's change course, and let's do better. And the book of Ephesians gives us that roadmap. The book of Ephesians gives us that that roadmap. Now, just to kind of reset the context of Ephesians, it was a church that was bitter with racial divisions. Ephesus was this sort of melting pot uh, that was very successful. It's a port city similar to the United States of America, this melting pot of of ethnicities, uh, an economic engine of the Roman Empire. What had happened was the Jews first received Jesus Christ as the Jewish Savior, right? The the Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, pointed towards a savior to come. Here comes Jesus claiming to be the savior, the forgiver of the Lord, and to establish a brand new kingdom on earth. And so Jews followed Jesus first. What happened a little bit later is Gentiles now, non-Jews, started coming to faith and joining Jews in their church, in their synagogues, and there was this multi-ethnic reality. Now, the Jews were used to being oppressed by the Romans, but they were the majority in their synagogues. So here comes the Gentiles. The Gentiles come into their synagogues. Now they're the majority in their synagogues. Now they have power. Now they have the seats of leadership. And what do they do? They oppress the minorities. They oppress the Gentiles. And the way they did that was through pretty stark, very obvious spiritual oppression. So they said to the Gentiles, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to become like us. 
and it's so easy to do that. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to become like us. So you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the Sabbath. You have to obey all the commandments. You have to follow the dietary laws. You have to kind of follow the rules of the synagogue and the rules of the temple, the sacrificial systems. You have to do it all. And the Gentiles are saying, I really just want to follow Jesus. I really do not want to have my manhood cut for understandable reasons. I do like my uh, barbecue pork sandwiches. Uh, Do I really have to do all of the kind of the moral codes and the religious codes and the temple codes and the priestly codes? And do I have to do all? All that and the Jews were saying, Yes, you do. And by the way, as you do that, you can't sit in the front, you've got to sit in the back, you can't have places of leadership and influence, you've got to be on the margins. And so the Jews who were oppressed politically were the oppressors spiritually. And so here we have the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians was written to correct that injustice. So here we have Ephesians chapter 1. We talked about this last week, Ephesians 1. Radical reform begins when we see people as God sees them. And so Ephesians 1 is all about how do we see people. And if you were here last week, we see people as united in Christ. We see people as chosen in Christ. We see people as holy and blameless. We see people as adopted into the family of God. We see people as forgiven by the kindness of God. That's Ephesians chapter 1. It's this beautiful expression of how God sees us. It's an expression of how God sees us, and so therefore, that's how we ought to see others. And if we can see others, even especially those who are different than us, if we can see others the way God sees them, now we're on the road to radical reformation. We're on the road to togetherness, to unity, right? There's a great parallel passage found in 2 Corinthians 5.14. It is a doozy. So I'm not going to handle all the implications of this passage. It's gnarly. It's a doozy. But follow me. How do we see people here? Christ's love controls us, and that's the big umbrella of following Jesus. It's about love, 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 love. You never get tired of talking about love. It is the law that Jesus left us with. God is love. I mean, there's such a richness there if we just focus on love. So it's the love of Christ that controls us or compels us almost. The word there is almost forces us, almost like we have no choice but to see people in a different way, all right? Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, get that, Christ died for all, keep in mind the New Testament is in the context of racial inequities, racial injustice, racial tensions. So Paul here in 2 Corinthians is doing the same thing he did in Ephesians, which is to say this is how God looks at everyone. Christ died for all. We also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone. It says it again twice. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So, I mean, again, this is powerful. Jesus died for everybody, but for those who believe, they get to live a whole new life. A life of love. Goes on. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. What does it mean to live a new life in Christ? It means we don't evaluate others the way the world evaluates others. We see people differently. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. That is so powerful. How do we see the world around us? We see the world around us as in Christ, for whom Christ gave his life. Now, for those of us who believe, we have the privilege of living a new life, a life of love. So we no longer are sizing up people by our differences and by judgments, you know, you know and, and just by evaluating where they're wrong and we're right and where they're bad and we're good and all that normal kind of religious stuff, it goes away. We don't see people like that anymore. We see people as united in Christ. We see people differently. So how do we see someone who is different ethnically? Ephesians 1. How do we see someone who is different culturally? Ephesians 1. 
How do we see people who are different economically? Ephesians 1. And you can say socially and politically. How do we see people who are different than us? Ephesians 1. United in Christ, chosen in Christ, holy, blameless, together, adopted in the family of God, forgiven by the kindness of God. If that's how we see everyone, imagine the change in our minds, imagine the change in our hearts, imagine the change in how we live and how we treat people, and imagine what would happen toward the cause of justice and the cause of mercy. It is powerful. So the encouragement of Ephesians 1 is that we see everyone as united in Christ, chosen in Christ, holy, blameless, adopted in the family of God, and forgiven. That's how we see the world. It's an incredibly unifying reality. And then for those who believe, we now have the freedom to love people with the love of Christ. That's the benefit of believing is we get to live this brand new life of love. Ephesians chapter 2. How does this happen? How does this unity happen? Why can we see people in a different light? Because of grace. Radical reform begins when we give grace to everyone as God gives grace to us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much. There it is again. Love, love, love. God's rich in mercy, and he he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace you have been saved. Now, why is that so important? It's so important because Paul is trying to correct racism in the church. He's trying to correct the Jews who are saying to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, you've got to become like us if you want to be right with God. You've got to become like us culturally and religiously if you want to be right with God. And Paul was saying, no, no, no. You, you are so proud of, of your religion that you think your religion gets you to God, it does not. That's why the Apostle Paul was very clear. Right out of the gate, in Ephesians chapter 2, your religious devotion means nothing. We are saved by grace alone. You're so proud of your religious devotion. I do this, and I do this, and I, I obey God's commandments. And I, Paul says that means nothing when it comes to your relationship with God. And so settle it down. Settle down the religious pride and judgment. Everyone is saved by grace alone. He goes on to say this, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, very famous passage. God saved you. I love that. It's all over the New Testament. God saved you. We don't save ourselves. We don't do our part. God just does it. It's by grace. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Again, what's the Apostle Paul doing? He's correcting the Jews who were perpetrating racial injustice against the non-Jews, and and they were walking around with all their pride and all their arrogance, and not only are we religiously devout, but look at our works. Look at our obedience, right? And what does Paul say? It's not based on works. It's not based on works. Your religious works mean nothing. We are saved by grace alone. Your religious works mean nothing. We are saved by grace alone. We are equal in God's grace. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're white or black or brown, we are all saved by God's grace. God looks at us the same, Ephesians 1, and he treats us with grace, Ephesians 2. That's how we can see each other. Now, does that mean, all right, we're all saved by grace. Our religious devotion doesn't mean anything. Our religious works don't mean anything. So does that mean that we just sit around on our hands, that there's nothing to do? We just enjoy God's grace and sit on our hands? Hardly. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
God has a plan for us to do good things. And I cannot tell you how many people take Ephesians out of context and say, look, you know, we're saved by grace, but then get to work. Do more religious things. Be religiously obedient, right? That's not the context of Ephesians. It's not Ephesians chapter 2. What is the context of Ephesians 2? Racial equality, racial justice, racial reconciliation. So what is the good work that we're called to do? Well, all you have to do is just look at your Bible. Right after Ephesians 2.10, there's likely a header. Now, this is put there by the editors. What is the header beginning uh, with Ephesians 2.11? In my Bible, it says this. It says oneness and peace. What's the good work that God designed for us to do long ago? What's the good work that comes as a result of us being saved by grace, forgiven by grace, and in perfect union with God by grace? What's the work that we're called to do? Is to bring oneness and peace. The way we put it, conveniently, togetherness. Togetherness. And what is togetherness? If you were here last week, you saw our definition. It's a happy feeling of affection and closeness, experiencing life in harmony of relationship and in harmony of common cause. Inter-ethnically, inter-racially. That's the whole point of Ephesians. I would say that's the bigger picture point of the entire New Testament, beginning from the ministry of Jesus to that revelation vision of all tribes and tongues and nations together in Christ. Togetherness. This is the good work that we were designed to do. The good work of bringing the ethnicities together, the races together. Now, in order for us to understand race and culture and ethnicity in the Bible, we have to understand how they looked at race and ethnicity 2,000 years ago. Very different than the way we look at race and ethnicity now. So let's talk about race, culture, and religion in the Bible as we, as we finish up Ephesians chapter 2. During the time of the writing of the Bible, they knew nothing about genetics. They knew nothing about DNA. Nothing whatsoever. So all they knew in the time of the writing of the Bible, so 3,000 to 2,000 years ago, all they knew about race was really culture. They knew there were physical differences. I mean, that, that's kind of obvious. They knew people were, had different features uh, that typically depended on the region of the world, the known world that they came from. And so they knew there were, they were, there were differences of appearance, but that wasn't as important to them as the difference in culture. So when the Bible talks about race, it is not talking about ethnicity the way we understand it. When the Bible talks about race, it's only talking about cultural differences, not physical differences. And so in the scripture, what you see is, is people who are claiming to be of different races, yet they, same, they share the same bloodline. I mean, we can go back to the Old Testament. We've got the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Perizzites, and the Hivitites. These are all warring tribes in the area we now know as Palestine, area of Israel or Canaan, whatever you want to call it. They're at war with each other over their, quote, ethnic racial differences. Many of them share the exact same bloodline. Keep in mind, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, they knew nothing of, of, of genetics, heredity, uh, DNA, nothing. All they knew was that tribe over there, over the mountain, has a different culture, therefore they're the enemy. Now, every time in ancient civilization, what were the cultural differences? It was religion. So I, I don't want to oversimplify, but this is the general truth of race and ethnicity in the context of the Bible. It, it was about religious differences. Because religion determined the culture of any given tribe, 
and determined the, the practical differences between those tribes. They weren't so concerned about their looks. Keep in mind, they're not taking airplanes all over the world, and so they don't notice as starkly a lot of the regional differences across the globe. Their primary concern and their primary differences and the primary cause of tension was their religious cultural differences. Here's another example of the time of Christ. Uh, Jesus was raised, of course, in a, in a very racist environment where the Jews were supposed to hate the Samaritans and the Samaritans were supposed to hate the Jews. That's, that's just normal. It's just what you did. It's what your grandparents did. It's what you do. It's just we hate them. Well, genetically, the Samaritans and the Jews are identical, nearly identical, right? As identical as two human beings can be. It has nothing to do with genetics, nothing to do with DNA, 100% to do with cultural religious differences. Even now, to this very day, we might think, okay, well, the, the Jews and Arabs don't get along very well, and that must be about genetics. That must, must be about DNA. Well, there's been a lot of studies done with Arabs and Jews, and their genetic differences are minuscule. In fact, here is a quote from a, uh, a very detailed, comprehensive genetic report uh, and a study of Jews and Arabs in particular. Jews share a common set of genetic signatures with non-Jews from the Middle East, including Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. Consequently, Jews and Arabs share a common ancestor and are more closely related to one another than to non-Jews from other areas of the world. So you take a, a, a Jewish person, th these are broad generalities, but you take a Jewish person in, the, in, the, in Israel and compare their genetics to a Jewish person, let's say, here in North America. And then you compare a, a Jewish person's DNA in, in Israel with a Syrian or Lebanese or Palestinian, and they're more similar than the person they call a brother or sister across the country or across the world. It's not about genetics. It's never been about genetics. It's always been about our cultural differences, particularly around religion. And if you look at really the differences uh, genetically, it's, it's pretty astounding. Uh, there are an awful lot of things about genetics, particularly about DNA um, and the sequencing of DNA that really should compel us to think, we are the same. We are the same. You've got a different skin tone, different hair, different facial features, different builds. Fantastic. But we're the same. Let me give you the stats around this. Human beings are all 99.9% the same, genetically. 99.9% the same. You take one human being and another human being who look the most different on earth. Just think in your mind what that might be. You get two people on earth, human beings, who look the most different, they share 99.9% of their genetic material. Uh, you might be happy to know that we share 96% of our genetic sequencing with the chimpanzee. 96%, right? You might be happy to know that we are 85% genetically similar to the rat. 80, 85%. So if anybody does something gross, you just say, well, that's, you're 85% rat. And uh, so, so deal with that. We are 61% genetically similar to the fruit fly. So if somebody does something annoying, well, that's your 61% fruit fly. Get, get away from it. We are 50% genetically similar to a banana. I think that's so funny, and there's so few people here to laugh at that. So if somebody does something clumsy, that's 60% banana in you, right? So I mean, when you look at genetic codes, genetic material, what we now understand as race and ethnicity, we have to realize that we're off the mark. We're really not different. We are the same. So what's the problem? Here you have the problem in the Bible 
where there's this religious cultural fighting, and here you have a problem today when we are really treating each other differently based on the, the 0.1% minor differences in genetics. Why is there such tension? Whether it's the culture of Ephesians 2,000 years ago or the culture today where there's all these tensions and judging and sizing each other up and mistreating each other, injustices and biases, right? Where does all that come from? It all comes from one spot, and that's tribalism. It all comes from tribalism. And we talk about that a lot here because we've been kind of fighting this fight for a while. Tribalism is this sense that I am insecure and because I'm insecure, I need the safety of a tribe just like me. That's tribalism. It goes way back to the dawn of humanity. Right? I got to protect myself from other tribes. They're over there. They're different. They must be the enemy. And so I got to get people around me that are just like me. It gives me affirmation that I'm not alone and makes me feel safe. Insecure people need a tribe. And let me just say it. Religion is a tribe. Politics is a tribe. Insecure people need religion to make them feel as though they belong and make them feel safe. Insecure people need politics to make their insecure souls feel as though I've got people around me and we're going to be okay because we're going to bound together and we're going to take back this and we're going to do that. Insecure people need tribes. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 talks about you don't need to be insecure. You are one with God in Christ. You are forgiven. You're holy and blameless in His sight. You're an adopted daughter and son of God. You're, you should be secure. Christians should be the most secure people on earth, and yet we come across as the most insecure, needing tribes. Where's my people? Where's my people who believe just the way I do? And all these minor doctrines. Yeah, yeah, you agree with me? Okay, therefore uh, I belong to this church. Uh, we, we enjoy our style of worship, therefore I belong to this church, right? Uh, people are saying the same things, and we're all nodding our heads in agreement. It's just pure tribalism. Insecure people need the tribalism of religion. Insecure people need the tribalism of politics. And so as a result of tribalism, tensions rise. The more same people are, the more safe I feel. The more different people are, the more insecure and unsafe I feel. So let's bound together. It's just human nature. So what's the way out? The way out is to escape tribalism. The way out is togetherness. And togetherness means internally I'm secure in Christ. And as a result, I don't need a tribe. I'm secure in Christ, so I want to enjoy a diverse community that lives for the benefit of others. That's what Jesus did, as secure as you could possibly be. He knew he, who he was in, in his Father's eyes. He knew he was secure. He knew he was one with God. He knew he was loved by God. He knew he was empowered by God, and so he had all the security in the world to live his life for the benefit of others, even laying down his life for the benefit of others. That's togetherness. That's what Ephesians 2 calls a voluntary membership in a whole new race. Took a long time to kind of till the soil here to get to the punchline of Ephesians chapter 2, which, which is the call to volunteer to join a whole new race. And I put that in quotes because that is the language of Ephesians chapter 2. Here's the passage. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. And again, when he's talking about us, he's talking about racial tensions, peace with racial tensions. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. So get that. Jews were calling themselves the people of God, the chosen of God. And the Gentiles were out there saying, you know, how do, we, do we belong? Are we even welcome? He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Powerful stuff. He did this by ending the system of law and commandments, ending the system of law and commandments and regulations. He made peace 
between the two, between Jew and Gentile, by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Isn't that exciting? One new people from the two groups. And how did he do that? He did that by ending the system of law and commandments and regulations. I want us to hear this. Christians, I want us to hear this. Jesus brought Jew and Gentile together because he ended the Jewish commandments. He ended the Jewish regulations. He ended the Jewish religious traditions. Now, they could still practice them, but that didn't get them to God because they're saved by grace. He ended the law and the commandments and and everything that, that really the Jews considered to be their religious cultural identity. Jesus ended it on the cross. He obeyed the commandments perfectly and gave us his obedience, gave us his righteousness. He died on the cross. He took the sins of the world upon himself and paid the consequence, the price of a world's injustice oppressed against him. He paid that price in full. So there is no price for us to pay. He rose from the dead and is one with God, and we are in Christ, one with God. It is purely by grace, not by works. We are all in Christ. Jew and Gentile broke down the walls of hostility. And as a result, there is one new humanity, one new humanity that we volunteer for, that we volunteer for. Let's volunteer to be a part of one new humanity. Let's cherish our traditions and cherish our culture and cherish our religious backgrounds, but let's look forward to being a part of one new humanity. What can you do? What can we do? What can I do? Reach out to int- intentionally to be in a relationship with people unlike you. It won't be easy. Build a multi-ethnic church. Only 3% of evangelical churches are multi-ethnic. Let's work together to build that and serve and give generously towards justice and mercy and become this new people, this voluntary new race that unites all the ethnicities and races of the world in love in Christ. I look forward to seeing you next week.